Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to be starting our Period 9 podcast titled The Conservative Resurgence from 1980 to the year 2000. Here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Period 9 begins in 1980, and it's important to understand the last 40 years to truly comprehend where we are today in 2019. The most important changes in the 1980s and 1990s were really three things. The collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, the breakup of the Soviet Union, and the end of the Cold War. But with the Cold War ending, what we see is older ethnic and religious conflicts around the world, specifically in Eastern Europe, begin to reemerge and threaten the peace, with civil war and terrorism becoming the new norm in this era. On the domestic side of things, we see the rise of conservatism culminate with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. This conservative movement really started back in 1964 with Barry Goldwater, who lost a landslide election to LBJ, but his policies really were the spark which began this new movement. The policies of Presidents Nixon and Ford continued it, and the writings of conservative political commentator William Buckley Jr. and free market economist Milton Friedman gave evidence that in the 1970s, the American political spectrum was shifting to the right, away from the liberalism of the 1960s, and the political arena that the New Deal of FDR had created. This is something I've read recently, which I think is really helpful to understand 20th century American politics. Some presidents build new ideological stadiums that future presidents on the left and on the right are forced to play in. In the last 100 years, there have only been two presidencies that have had a lasting generational impact on the American political spectrum, the first being FDR. Not just because he was in office so long, but because he changed the political consensus of the American people. He changed the game. You see, FDR created a world where everyone understood that the role of the government was really important, that it was imperative to use public action to solve public problems. Democrats happened to be more excited about doing this in the 30 years after FDR, but even Eisenhower and Nixon had to play on the field, in the arena, or in the stadium that FDR created. That changed in 1980, because when Reagan was elected, he also shifted the American political consensus. Because after Reagan's presidency, there was a new consensus amongst the American people. That is that capitalism is a great force of human advancement and that government is the thing that we should be careful in using. This is why the conservative resurgence is so important because Reagan's administration represented a shift in the political spectrum and the political landscape of America. For the next 30 years, all politicians would have to play within the stadium that Reagan built. The conservative movement really had four leading issues, the first being an overall effort to try and lower taxes. This starts really in 1978, where California voters revolt by passing a sharp cut to property taxes. But overall, there was this belief by conservatives that tax cuts would help increase government revenues and overall help stimulate the economy. The other factor that played into this conservative movement was this religious revival. Th this moral decay was really a weekly theme of religious leaders on television, such as Pat Robertson, Oral Roberts, and Jim Baker. This one man named Jerry Falwell helped really cement the connection between religion 
and electoral politics. When he founded the Moral Majority, he really tried to just finance campaigns to unseat liberal members of Congress. There was religious fundamentalists also who attacked this secular humanism as a godless creed taking over our public education systems. And so what we have is an effort to try and return prayers and the teaching of the biblical account of creation in public schools. Many of you will remember the rise of fundamentalism in the 1920s. This usually occurs in our society when groups of people believe that change is occurring at too rapid of of a pace and there needs to be an effort to slow it down. That was what was happening with this religious revival. We also have in 1973 the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. This decision sparked the right to life movement as we know of it today. And what it did, which was unique, was it united Catholics and fundamentalist Protestants for the first time with a common cause. We also have the situation where in 1965, we have a U.S. government policy known as affirmative action. This was an effort to try and help underprivileged minorities and women to finally have equal access to education and jobs. Well, after suffering through the recession and stagflation in the 1970s, many people started blaming their troubles on affirmative action, calling it reverse discrimination. While this wasn't really always the case, the sentiment was there from the conservative community that this was had gone too far. Now, this really came into uh, play with the Supreme Court case of Regents of the University of California versus Bach, where a medical school admissions policy of having certain quotas where you would have certain slots available for people of different races and 100 for this group of people and maybe 200 for this group of people, this ruling deemed that that was unconstitutional. Race could be considered in the admissions process, but just holding those spots open was something that they believe was too preferential to certain groups. So that uh, changed the process of affirmative action, but it did not end it. The fourth leading issue for the conservative movement was the effort of trying to deregulate laws for businesses. Business interests had successfully really campaigned and made an effort to impose their ideas that curtailing regulations and lowering taxes would help our economy. They also made a concerted effort to try and weaken labor unions as seeing as them being an obstacle to their profits. What the businesses did was they created these things known as think tanks. Some of the more famous ones are the American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, and the Cato Institutes. Large corporations would spend money to help fund these institutes to promote free market ideas, and they successfully lobbied the United States Congress and United States Chamber of Commerce for more pro-business legislation. And this brings us to the 1980 election. Ronald Reagan had been on the political scene for quite some time. In 1968, he tried to challenge Nixon at the Republican convention for the nomination. But it wasn't until 1980 when he was able to win, largely because he cemented the fact that he was a sensible champion of average Americans. He was likable, and he proved a master of the media, which was helpful in his campaign. He successfully campaigned against Carter by really asking the American people, are you better off than you were four years ago? He called it the misery index, a combination of inflation and unemployment at home, plus with the embarrassment of the Iranian hostage crisis, Reagan was able to point to the failure of leadership of Carter. Reagan's election really broke up a key element of the New Deal coalition. He took more than 50% of the blue-collar vote in America. We also see the moral majority helping the Republicans gain control of the Senate for the first time since 1954. They gained 11 seats in the Senate and 33 seats in the House. The 1980 election ended a half-century of Democratic dominance in Congress. And this is what we call the Reagan Revolution. Already with a very high public approval rating, On his first day in office, Iran ends up releasing the hostages. This really helped uh, increase his public appeal. You also have a situation that two months into his presidency, he actually survives an assassination attempt. And Reagan handled this crisis with such humor and charm that he emerged as an even more popular leader than before. The key element to understand about his domestic policy is what we're going to call Reaganomics. It's similar to the trickle-down economics in the 1920s, but they refer to it as supply-side economics in the 1980s. It was the argument that tax cuts, along with reduced government spending, would help increase the investment by the private sector. If the businesses have more money, they'll be able to create more production, they'll be able to have more, uh, hire more people and create more jobs, and that would create an overall environment of prosperity for our economy. This was a contrast to the Keynesian economics that had long been favored by New Deal Democrats of the past. 
But the critics, like I mentioned, compared it to the economics of the 1920s. Federal tax relief really started with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. This is an overall 25% reduction in income taxes over three years. It was largely focused on cor- corporate capital gains, which is profits made in the stock market, and gift inheritance taxes. Because of this, it guaranteed that a large share of the tax relief actually went to upper income taxpayers. This tax reduction also took the top income tax rate and brought it all the way down to 28%. Spending cuts overall were able to be accomplished in Congress for Reagan because of the conservative Southern Democrats. They and the Republicans cut more than $40 billion from domestic programs, things like food stamps, student loans, and mass transit. Deregulation was also a huge theme of the Reagan administration. He had promised to get the government off of the backs of the people. They tried to reduce regulation on business and industry specifically. Things like savings and loans institutions, banks, or mergers and takeovers by larger corporations, they took away some of the rules that have been in place since the New Deal. Other things like environmental protection, safety in the auto industry, emission standards, all these things were rolled back in an effort to try and allow businesses to flourish and thrive without the pesky government getting in the way, telling them what they could do and couldn't do. We also have a unique situation with the Secretary of Interior, James Watt, who opened up federal lands for increased coal and timber production, as well as offshore waters for oil drilling. One of the things that Reagan is most well known for, looking back, is how he took his tough stand against unions. Reagan actually fired thousands of striking federal air traffic controllers who had violated their contract, and then, in an effort to try and punish them, he decertified their union. He did this by saying that by them and their industry deciding not to come to work, they could shut down and affect the overall American economy and put people in harm's way, the fact that they're in charge of the safety and the safe operation of airports. Many businesses followed this by hiring what was known as scabs, or basically replacements in labor conflicts going forward. These anti-union policies, along with the loss of manufacturing jobs, really declined union membership in our country. In 1962, we had 30% of all workers in unions. By the late 1990s, only 12%. It's even lower today. In 1982, unfortunately for Reagan, the nation ends up suffering one of the worst recessions since the 1930s. Unemployment gets all the way up to 11%. But the recession, along with the fall in oil prices, did have one positive impact. They actually reduced inflation that had become uh, such an issue since the 1970s. In 1983, finally, we saw some of the policies of Reaganomics taking hold, and the economy rebounded and began a recovery. But like we mentioned earlier, the recovery only widened the gap between the rich and the poor in terms of income. The upper income groups benefited greatly from the deregulated markets, and the standard of living for the middle class was largely stagnant and in some cases declined. It wasn't until the late 1990s when the middle class gained back some of their losses. Social issues were really important to Reagan as well. He tried to make an effort to appoint conservative judges to the Supreme Court. This showed the important role that the moral majority had had in his campaign, and he wanted to make sure his supporters were pleased. He nominated Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman to ever serve on the court. Later on, he nominated Antonin Scalia and Anthony Kennedy. The court under Reagan's administration was known for rolling back a few affirmative action policies, as well as limiting Roe v. Wade by allowing states to impose restrictions on abortion. The election of 1984 was unique in the sense we saw a few firsts in American history. Jesse Jackson became the first African-American politician to make a strong run for the presidency. We also had the Democrats nominate Walter Mondale, who was vice president for Jimmy Carter, but he chose Geraldine Ferraro. She was the first woman to ever be a vice president on a major party ticket. But Reagan won convincingly, winning 49 out of the 50 states in the Electoral College. There are some lasting aspects of Reaganomics that we need to take a look at. And the impact of Reaganomics largely showed that reduced restrictions on free market economy put a lot of money into the hands of Americans, but those happened to be investors and higher income Americans. And it succeeded in containing the growth of the New Deal and the great society welfare state. But the huge federal deficits that were created, where our national debt went from $900 billion to $2.7 trillion, is important to see how that impacted the next 25 years. Reaganomics really changed the debate in terms of what government programs were needed to debate the issues of which programs should we cut and by how much because of the issue of 
our national debt. Foreign policy is also critical to understand during the Reagan years. And specifically for him, what he tried to do was increase spending for defense, but also aid anti-communist forces in Latin America. Those are the two hallmarks of Reagan's approach. Billions were spent on a new weapon system, a B-1 bomber and an MX missile. He tried to expand the U.S. Navy from 450 ships to 600, but most famously was the Strategic Defense Initiative. It was an ambitious plan to build a high-tech system of lasers and particle beams to try to destroy enemy missiles before they could reach the United States. Critics called it far-fetched and even nicknamed it as the Star Wars plan, excuse me, plan because of the fact that it would be costly and would only escalate the arm race, not to mention it would probably be ineffective. The defense budget grew from $171 billion in 1981 to $300 billion in 1985. In Central America, Reagan often supported friendly right-wing dictators to keep out communism. Famously, in 1979, in Nicaragua, there were Marxist Sandinistas that overthrew the country's dictator. In response, the United States provided military aid to the group that was known as the Contras, going up against the Sandinistas. But in 1985, the Democrats actually opposed these policies in Nicaragua and passed what was known as the Boland Amendment. This prohibited further aid to the Contras. Later, we see in El Salvador, Reagan also spent money, $5 billion of it, to support a Salvadoran government that was against a leftist group of guerrillas. This is significant because of the fact that many Americans eventually protest this movement because of the fact that the El Salvadorian army was connected to right-wing death squads that had killed more than 40,000 civilians and American missionaries in their effort to control these guerrilla groups. One positive movement that Reagan made was the intervention in Grenada, where a small force of Marines were sent in to invade the island after a pro-Cuban uh, regime had been established after a coup. The United States military quickly invaded and succeeded in reestablishing a more pro-United States government. One of the more notable moments in the Reagan administration in terms of foreign policy is known as the Iran-Contra affair. While Grenada was a positive triumph for Reagan, what we see here is that Reagan aides created a secret plan and kept it from the American people. In the effort to support Iran's government for its help in freeing American hostages, we tried to sell United States anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to Iran's government. In 1986, a Reagan staff member had the great idea to use the funds from that secret deal to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. This ended up becoming a little bit of a scandal because of the fact that the Boland Amendment had been put in place. The American government was not allowed to do this. Reagan denied any involvement or any knowledge of the illegal diversion of funds, but what happened was his image was tarnished as someone who might have been uninformed and too much of a hands-off president who might have been easily manipulated by his advisors late in his administration. There were several events that happened in the Middle East that were viewed as setbacks for Reagan. In 1982, Israel, with the United States' approval, invaded southern Lebanon to stop a new organization known as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO. They were viewed as a terrorist organization because of the fact that they had been raiding the northern border of Israel. The U.S. also sent peacekeeping forces into Lebanon to try and contain a bitter civil war that was taking place. A series of suicide bombers attacked in 1983. And in 1984, Reagan ends up pulling out all of those forces that he had sent in with very little to show for it or the loss of lives. Secretary of State George Shultz ended up pushing for a peaceful settlement of the Palestinian-Israel conflict. There is some progress because we end up setting up a homeland for the PLO in what is known as the West Bank Territories. Those areas have been occupied by Israel since the 1967 war. Under the United States pressure, PLO leader Yasser Arafat actually agreed in 1988 to recognize Israel's right to exist, which was a step in the right direction. One of the things that Reagan is most well known for in his foreign policy is the improved U.S.-Soviet relations during his term. Although the Cold War had been intensifying with Reagan's arm buildup and the Soviet development of missiles against other NATO countries, in 1985 there was a crucial shift. Mikhail Gorbachev became the new Soviet leader, and he was somebody who came into power to try and become a dynamic reformer. He attempted to change many Soviet domestic policies with two major reforms, Glasnost and Perestroika, which you will remember from last year. Reagan really did a good job of challenging the Soviet leader to do what he said he sought out to do, to follow through with his reforms. In 1987, 
Reagan gave his famous speech in front of the Brandenburg Gate and the Berlin Wall, where Reagan ended with the words and the line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan and Gorbachev's relationship built as they agreed to remove and destroy all intermediate-range missiles, as well as in 1988, where Gorbachev further reduced Cold War tensions by starting to pull out Soviet troops from Afghanistan. Many historians refer to Afghanistan as the Soviet Union's Vietnam. He also cooperated with the U.S. to pressure Iran and Iraq to end their war. When we pull back and try to assess Reagan's policy towards the Soviet Union, it's important to understand that Reagan's administration made a huge argument, which is backed up, that the military buildup really forced the Soviet Union to concede defeat and abandon the Cold War. They simply could not keep up with the production level that our government and our economy was able to create. Some have concluded that Gorbachev ended the Cold War to reform the troubled communist and economic political system. Yet others have given credit to George Keenan's containment policies, the man who came up with that back in the 1950s. Reagan, at the end of his administration, was nicknamed the Great Communicator. His style, humor, and expressions of patriotism had done a great job to win over most of the electorate. He ended up leaving office as one of the most popular presidents of the 20th century. And that brings us to the election of 1988. The Democrats nominated governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis, and the Republican candidate for president was actually Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush. Bush did not have the charisma or the presence in front of the camera, but Dukakis was not a very strong candidate, and George Bush repeatedly attacked him on being soft on crime and weak on national defense. Bush also famously said in his campaign, Read my lips, no new taxes, a promise that unfortunately came back to bite him in a few years. George H.W. Bush, after winning the election, also had to deal with the fact that the collapse of the Soviet Union was happening under his watch. The first years were dominated by dramatic changes in the communist world. Specifically in 1989, Tiananmen Square, where there's a pro-democracy movement led by students in Beijing. TV cameras from the West broadcast this movement from around the world where students were in there uh, in the square chanting with banners asking for a democratic uh, society where they could have a say in the way in which their country was run. Well, under the cover of the night, the Chinese communist government crushed the protest with tanks, killing hundreds of students and ending the brief flowering of an open political environment in China. We also saw this in Eastern Europe. Gorbachev declared he would no longer support Eastern European countries with Soviet armed forces. And what this did was really open up nationalist and democratic movements throughout the region. This also was going on in Eastern Germany, where the Communist Party was being forced out by protesters who had torn down sections of the Berlin Wall. In October 1990, Germany was finally reunited with the blessings from NATO and the USSR. The break of the Soviet Union happened rather quickly after the conclusion of 1990, when Soviet republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania all had declared their independence. After a failed coup against Gorbachev within the Soviet Union by communist hardliners, the remaining republics ended up dissolving the Soviet Union in December of 1991. The man Boris Yeltsin emerged as the president of the Soviet Republic, and he joined the nine former Soviet republics to form what was known briefly as the Commonwealth of Independent States. Yeltsin ends up disbanding the Communist Party in Russia and attempted to establish a democracy and free market economy. At the end of the Cold War, there were two crucial agreements between Bush and Gorbachev. In 1991, they signed the START-1 agreement, where they reduced the number of nuclear warheads. And then in 1992, the START-2 treaty reduced the number of warheads, but also offered economic assistance to the troubled Russian economy. In addition to this, early on in Bush's administration, we end up having an invasion of Panama. It was U.S. intervention that was not related to the policy of containment. Troops invaded to remove the autocratic general, Manuel Noriega. The purpose of the mission was to try and stop Noriega from using Panama as a drug pipeline to the United States. U.S. troops remained until elections established a more, quote-unquote, credible government. The other significant foreign policy decision that Bush had to make was known as the Persian Gulf War. In August of 1990, Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein invaded the oil-rich but the weak Kuwait. This threatened Western oil sources in Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf. 
Because of this, President Bush successfully appealed to the United Nations. Members from all over the world joined us to create a coalition to create a United Nations embargo against Iraq. This had little effect. Bush ended up winning congressional approval for a military campaign to try and roll back Iraq's aggression. In 1991, Operation Desert Storm began. 700,000 American troops were joined by military units from 28 other nations, and there were five weeks of relentless airstrikes followed by a brilliant invasion. After only 100 hours of actually fighting on the ground, Iraq had conceded defeat. On the domestic side of things during H.W. Bush's administration, most prominent was the nomination of Clarence Thomas. He was replacing the retiring Thurgood Marshall. Thomas was extremely controversial for a few reasons. First off, he was replacing the only African-American on the Supreme Court, but he had much more conservative views on judicial issues than the majority of African-Americans in the country. But also, there were charges of sexual harassment against him. A former co-worker of his, Anita Hill, who at the time was working at the University of Oklahoma Law School, confronted Clarence Thomas by testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This hearing that was on national television was a national spectacle that everyone tuned in to see. And the reality of it was that although it did not prevent Clarence Thomas being confirmed, the impact of the Anita Hill testimony, where a woman was telling her story to an all-male panel of senators, did have an impact. And in the 1992 election, many believe that it spurred on and encouraged many women to run for office believing that there needed to be more women in the United States Senate. But at the conclusion of the testimony, Clarence Thomas became the second African-American to be appointed to the Supreme Court, with the Senate confirming him by the vote of 52 to 48, which was the smallest margin any Supreme Court justice was confirmed in over 100 years. One of the other domestic issues that Bush was left to confront was the fact that those federal deficits for the last 10 years had finally caught up with the economy. Republicans end up feeling betrayed when he went back on his campaign promise of no new taxes, and this ended up hurting his reelection chances. He ended up signing on to the Democratic Congress's proposed new tax policy, where the top income tax rate went back up from 28 to 31 percent. And he also raised excise taxes on beer, wine, cigarettes, gas, and luxury cars and yachts, known as the sin taxes. Most damaging to Bush's re-election was the fact that a recession started two years into his administration. It really ended the Reagan era of prosperity. Unemployment and the decrease of the average family income dramatically hurt him. The political inertia of his era was interesting because when he ran for president, he called for America to become a kinder, gentler America, and he wanted himself to be the education president. One significant moment was in 1990 when he signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act. It prohibited discrimination against citizens with physical or mental disabilities in hiring, transportation, or public accommodation. This is why any building built since then and many public facilities need ramps and some type of accommodation for those that are physically disabled, and other accommodations are made for students and individuals all across the country because of this act in their daily lives. Outside of that, though, the president offered very little in terms of domestic policy. During the recession, when people were hurting, Bush ended up cutting many federal programs where many people felt like they had been left behind by the Reagan revolution. This hurt him in the 1992 re-election campaign. There ended up becoming more of an anti-incumbent mood where anybody who was in office was not doing a good job. And this is usually a result of the economy. One of the most important factors in any election is how is the economy during that year? Because how people feel things are going in their lives determines whether they want someone new or stick with whoever's in. However, this particular anti-incumbent mood was unique because of the fact that so many people started to push for term limits on more elected officials. Many people in certain states got these policies passed, but it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they decided that states could not impose term limits on United States congressmen without a constitutional amendment. That was in U.S. Term Limits, Inc. versus Thornton in 1995. And in 1992, we did have the ratification of the 27th and most recent federal amendment to the Constitution. And that is one in which uniquely tells the United States Congress that they cannot raise their own salaries. 
this is the longest time from which amendment was proposed until it was passed because James Madison in 1789 was the original author of this amendment, but it was the environment in which people did not trust government and did not trust government officials to always do what was in their best interest that these things got passed. So the election of 1992 brings a new uh, political player into the field, and that is the man named William Jefferson Clinton. He was a youthful governor from Arkansas, and he has the significance of being the very first baby boomer to ever run for president. He was not a classic liberal Democrat. He kind of presented himself as a moderate or a new Democrat. He was an energetic campaigner and articulate. He was from the South, so in many ways appealed to many Southerners for that reason. And one of the things he did was focus on jobs, education, and health care, the vital center of the electorate. The majority of the American people care about these issues, and he was continually spurred on by his advisors by being told, it's the economy, stupid. Stick to that. Stay on message, and you'll win. The 92 election was unique for a few other reasons also, because this man, Ross Perot, a Texas billionaire, entered the race as an independent. He had so much money from his oil investments that he was able to spend millions of dollars on television ads to connect directly with the American people. And he was the classic outsider candidate, the first of his kind, to be able to fully fund his own campaign. And because of the popular um, polling in that era, he polled well enough to get on the debate stage with the Republican and Democratic candidates. Very rarely do we have a general election debate where we have three candidates on the stage, but he was able to do so because of his popularity. He appealed to Americans with his anti-Washington sentiment and anti-deficit views, saying we need a businessman to come into office and be able to balance the budget and set things right. Perot ended up getting 20% of the popular vote, which was the most of any third party since Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party in 1912. But he did not win any one state to mess with the Electoral College. And Clinton ended up winning with 43% of the popular vote when Bush only earned 37%. He did well in the South to recapture some of the blue-collar elderly voters that the Republicans had garnered from the Democratic Party in the 1980-84 and 88 election. And Democrats regained control of both houses of the new Congress. This new Congress also represented a little bit more of a diverse Congress than ever before. We had 66 minority members, 48 women, and the first black woman was ever elected to the Senate. Her name was Carol Mosley Braun of Illinois. Clinton's first term was represented by several early struggles. While the Democrats did have control in both houses of Congress, there are certain things in the United States Senate which require 60 votes in order to pass. Because of that, this allows a minority to be able to impact whether or not certain legislation can get done by using what is called a filibuster. The Senate Republicans used the filibuster to prevent any major legislation from being passed in the first two years of Clinton's administration. After initial efforts to reform health care were defeated, the president actually assigned his wife, Hillary Rodham Clinton, to head a task force to propose a plan for universal health care coverage. The insurance and medical industries, as well as the Republicans, had determined opposition, and this was also unable to pass. One thing Clinton also failed in was his efforts to try and end discrimination against gays in the military. And what he ended up settling for was known as the don't ask, don't tell policy. The discrimination that I referred to earlier was the fact that in this era, you were not able to be an outwardly gay person and serve in our military. Clinton had hoped to make it that this wouldn't have been an issue, but he was having to settle for the fact that no one would be asked if they were gay, and if they did not offer that information up, they would not be expelled. The reality for many servicemen and women were that you would have to remain closeted in order to continue to serve our country in the military. A few accomplishments that happened early in his administration was first the Family Medical Leave Act, allowing for paid time off for medical issues if you or a loved one has a serious issue where you need to be a caretaker for them. You can get off work and not have to worry about taking sick days and not have to worry about losing your job, that you have a policy in place that allows you to get paid 50% of what your regular salary is and you can come back to your workplace once this medical issue is resolved. The other issue is a motor voter law where people can now register to vote when they go and get their license at the DMV. 
But one of the more famous situations in 1994 is known as the Brady Handgun Bill. It was part of the 1994 anti-crime bill. It mandated a five-day waiting period for gun purchases. This has been shown to help with a variety of things. It lowers the amount of suicides when people are maybe going through a very difficult time and they go and purchase a gun and immediately act on that impulse. So a five-day waiting period allows people to cool off where violence might not be against themselves or others an option after that five-day waiting period. The other thing with the 1994 anti-crime bill was the fact that it banned the sale of most assault rifles in the United States. In addition to that, there was $30 billion investment for police protection and what was known as crime prevention programs. The assault rifle ban was something that angered the NRA and created what we know now as an incredibly involved political organization that the National Rifle Association is. Another part of this was that it expanded and increased the frequency of the federal death penalty. They had these policies known as mandatory minimum sentences and what was called truth in sentencing, whereas if you were given 10 years, you wouldn't be able to get out in good behavior for anything less than 85% of that service. The other aspect of this was that they were adopting and encouraging incentives for states to have more harsh punishments and limit parole to make it more difficult for people to leave on things, as I mentioned, like good behavior. Looking back on this now, a 1994 crime bill is looked at and viewed at as a situation that actually made a lot of issues worse in terms of mass incarceration. There's one thing that is bipartisan in our era right now in 2019, which is the policy of the fact that we realized in the 1980s and early 1990s, we thought being tough on crime was the best way to act against it. And what we realized that being smarter on crime was actually a better thing to do. So now one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats actually agree on is the fact that we put too many people in prison for nonviolent crimes and our sentencing is way too harsh. Many of those sentencing issues happened here because of this 1994 anti-crime bill. Mandatory minimums for simple offenses, the thing known as uh, the three strikes rule, whereas a third nonviolent offense could give you life in prison. Um, Simple things like possession of drugs that today would be fines for things like marijuana in many states were things to giving people 15, 20, or 30 years in jail. So looking at these, this crime bill from the prism of the present day, we see there were many flaws in it that led to a lot of policies that detrimentally harmed uh, black and brown communities. One of the other things that was accomplished during the Clinton administration was a deficit reduction budget. They decreased spending, but at the same time increased taxes. By doing this, they tried to invest in education and job training. And at the end of the eight years in office, Clinton was able to balance the budget. Most notably in terms of the economy, though, was the North American Free Trade Agreement. Canada, United States, and Mexico joined into having free trade across our borders, and it immediately helped the economy of all three countries. There were some effects, long-term effects of this trade agreement that are still being debated in the present day. However, after a few years in office, the Republicans, mounting a resistance against Clinton, were successful in taking over Congress in 1994 midterms. They were known as zealous reformers, led by the man named Newt Gingrich. He was a newly elected Speaker of the House from Georgia, and he led the Republicans in attacking federal programs and spending. When this happened, Clinton famously said in his State of the Union that the era of big government is over. And this is a way of understanding that the Reagan template, the Reagan stadium that we are presented in in the 1990s and early 2000s was ever more true, is that Clinton was having to play by the rules that Reagan had established, that government was over-involved in the Americans' lives. And this really was a way for him to try and agree with many more moderates, both in the Republican and Democratic Party. His goal of balancing the budget and saying that we will have a leaner, not meaner budget is a way to try and appeal to the center of the country. The confrontation between Gingrich and Clinton, though, escalated quickly, and there were two government shutdowns in the late of 1995. However, coming out of this, Many people in America blamed the Republicans for being a little bit 
too overzealous in their demands. Anti-government reformers were not helped by the fact that the mood in the country changed in 1995 when there was a terrorist attack where a man named Timothy McVeigh set off a bomb outside of a federal building in Oklahoma City. This bombing killed 169 lives. It was the worst act of terrorism in our country until 9-11. In 1996, Congress and the president comprised, uh, excuse me, compromised on a budget. They ended up leaving Medicare and Social Security benefits intact, but there were some changes to things like welfare, where you were limited to only being on welfare for five years, and they included some work requirements in order to receive benefits. They also curbed immigration and increased the minimum wage. Spending cuts and tax increases that went along with this budget helped record a record growth in the economy. The elimination of the federal deficit in 1998 created the very first federal surplus since 1969. In 1996, the strong economy and the moderate positions taken after the 1994 midterms helped President Clinton win in his re-election. The Republicans nominated Senator Bob Dole, who proposed a 15% tax cut across the board, but he had never really had a strong enough campaign to capture the imagination of the voters of America. Clinton won with 49% of the popular vote, and even though Ross Perot ran again, he did not have an impact on the race. Clinton became the first Democratic president to win re-election since FDR. Republicans were able to celebrate retaining control of both houses of Congress, though. The other thing that's occurring in the 1990s that we need to take note of is the technology boom. The U.S. enjoyed the longest peacetime economic expansion in history, with growth rates of more than 4% on an annual basis. In a large part, this is because of the internet and the advent of computers and software. All this new wireless communications really fueled productivity. E-commerce became a way of life. The things that we take for granted now really started in the 1990s. The old government, uh, excuse me, the old businesses of Apple, Intel, and Microsoft were finally joined with Amazon, AOL, Yahoo, and Google. The dot-com boom helped the stock market gain more than 20% during the 1990s. Unemployment hit a 30-year low in 3.9% in 2000, and at its peak, the average and low-income Americans experienced the first gains in real income since 1973. But the second term of Clinton's administration also was dealt with the politics of impeachment. See, since the very beginning of Clinton's administration, he was under investigation. Not only him, but his wife and other cabinet members. All these associates were under investigation by Congress, but also there was a congressionally appointed independent prosecutor. This man's name was Kenneth Starr. And in the, me, um, in the midst of investigating the Clinton's real estate deal, known as Whitewater, Kenneth Starr found and discovered that the president had an extramarital affair. President Clinton lied during a deposition about this, a deposition, excuse me, about his relations with a young woman, a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. In doing this, in lying under oath about his personal behavior, the following year, in December of 1998, after the midterm elections, the House of Representatives voted to impeach the president on two counts— Perjury, for one, lying under oath, and the other was obstruction of justice. The fact that he saw that the lie was going to be an issue, he went and spoke to the young woman, Monica Lewinsky, to try and cover his tracks, to try to tell her the version of the story that they should use to make it not seem as bad. This is known as obstruction of justice because he's using the position of power that he has to try to attempt to hide the truth, slow or undermine an, or otherwise impact an investigation. Although President Clinton did these things, in February of 1999, in a large part because it required a two-thirds vote in the Senate, most of the government and most of America didn't deem lying about personal behavior like an extramarital affair was something worthy of removing the president from office. So neither charge was upheld by the Senate, not even a majority of Senate, because the majority of Senate was Democrats. The public perception was that this was, an, once again, an overzealous group of Republican senators trying to go after a Democratic president. <clears throat> These events did occur, but it was the determination, a political decision, on whether or not it was worthy to remove a president for these actions. 
With Clinton surviving the impeachment scandal, his foreign policy is also something we need to look at in the 1990s. Peacekeeping largely became the role of the United States after the collapse of the Soviet Union because many ethnic, religious, and cultural conflicts around the world started to emerge. American troops were intervening in Somalia, Haiti, in an effort to stabilize uh, what was going on in a civil war. And we also tried to handle a failed military coup in Haiti to preserve the democratically elected president there. The other thing that established a change in Europe was the European Union became a unified 15 nations, 12 of which adopted the euro, a single currency, in 2002. Eventually, in 2007, the European Union grew to 27 member nations, 10 of which were former satellites of the Soviet Union. Under President Boris Yeltsin, the United States engaged with a more positive relationship with Russia, even though Russia struggled to reform its economy and had to fight rampant corruption. When the government controlled all of the private assets in the, in the Soviet Union, at the conclusion of the Soviet Union, they offered it up many of the public lands and public industries, they were offered up to sale. Unfortunately, what this did was it allowed some of the most wealthy people in that country, Russian oligarchs, were able to buy up all of the major industries and all of the important natural resources like oil and coal mines throughout the, the country. This led to a lot of corruption and favoritism of who were the people being able to get these assets. In 2000, Vladimir Putin was elected, and after that, the United States relationship was strained. We also have the situation in Serbia. A dictator named Slobodan Milosevic suppressed an independence movement with a series of armed conflicts. 100,000 ethnic and religious minorities were killed in what was known as ethnic cleansing or genocide. This all happened in the Yugoslav provinces. Diplomacy and bombings, as well as troops from NATO countries, all were part of the effort to try and stop this. The United States engaged in this both in Bosnia in 1995 and again in 1999 in Kosovo. These were the worst conflicts in Europe since World War II, and it kind of was a, a scary and troubling situation because we saw a reminder of how World War I started with all these tensions between different ethnicities and specifically religious minorities like Muslims. In Asia, there was a nuclear proliferation issue. In the 1990s, at the conclusion of the Soviet Union, North Korea stepped up its nuclear missile programs. India and Pakistan all gained access to the nuclear weapons in 1998. North Korea agreed to halt development with negotiations with the Clinton administration, but then they secretly restarted that program later on. We still see issues with North Korea to this day. In 1995, we end up establishing diplomatic relations with communist Vietnam for the first time. And Clinton administration continued to sign trade agreements with China, hoping to improve diplomatic relations and encourage reform within China, despite protests from United States human rights movements, where we believe that trade agreements with China were only going to hurt American labor unions and the American worker because of the fact that businesses would go there where our workers would not be able to compete on a value basis because of the basic financial realities of the cost of living here, but also the minimum wage. The other thing is in the Middle East. Saddam Hussein continued to defy UN weapons inspectors. The US had some success in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And unfortunately, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated in 1995. And unfortunately, this led into more issues in 2000 with the issues of Israeli security, as well as who controlled Jerusalem. You know, uh, renewed violence in Israel provoked a new round of anti-American sentiment amongst the Islamic world. Globalization was also increasing trade, communications, and the movement of capital around the world, which was great for businesses and overall economic expansion. However, there were some downsides of the globalization for the American worker. The World Trade Organization was established to try and enforce trade rules and settle disputes. The International Monetary Fund was trying to help make, make loans and supervise economic policies of the poorer nations in debt troubles. And we also have this group of eight that's established, known as the G8. Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, the UK, and the US. They control two-thirds of the world's wealth. And soon, China, India, and Brazil would emit, surpass some of the older powers like Italy and, and Russia. One of the things that we have is this group of eight 
comes together on an annual basis and sometimes more often to debate more world issues and economic concerns and international conversations. Workers and unions in the richest nations often resented globalization because they often lost their jobs to cheaper labor markets in the developing world. And that is something that NAFTA and globalization came into play in the 2016 election in terms of many American workers frustrated with what was going on. American society in the 2000s really changed because immigration was an important factor in the 1990s. We had the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that attempted to create a more fair entry process, but it failed to stop some of the issues of illegal entry into U.S. from the Mexico border. In 2000, the Hispanic population was the fastest growing segment of the population here in America, and they emerged as the largest minority group in the nation. Asian Americans also are another fast growing part of our society. By 2000, 10% of American population was foreign born. That's a high percentage, but is nowhere near the levels from the 1870s to the 1920s in our country. Immigration accounted for 28% of our population increase during the 90s, and sometimes people don't realize that immigration is the key to the stimulus of our economic growth during this decade for both workers and because we have an aging population. Without immigration, the United States is on a path to have a negative population growth by 2030, meaning more people are dying than are being born. Because of the aging family, basically my parents' generation, people who are 65 and older or retirement age are a huge segment of the population because of the baby boomers, that largest segment that we've ever had. The baby boom generation has led concerns about health care, prescription drugs, Social Security, and housing for seniors. By 2030, estimates say that there will only be two workers for every one person receiving Social Security. And I don't know if Social Security will be able to hold up. There are methods that we could adjust in terms of how much money goes into Social Security, but also what type of payments go out to people on a more of a needs-based basis in the future to make sure Social Security lasts for future generations. Another thing that is changing in terms of America is the traditional family. There's a growing number of single-parent families, and one of the concerns is that many times single-parent children growing up in single-parent households often grow up in poverty and without adequate support. It's a growing trend amongst all American households. The other thing that happens in the 1990s is this income and wealth situation where many Americans are achieving the American dream. Home ownership continues to climb where 67% of all American households own a home. While the economy was generating an incredible amount of wealth, per person income was rising from 12,000 in 1970 to 22,000 in the year 2000. However, the top 20% of all households received more than half of all the income where the bottom 60% saw their wages actually decrease in the 20 years between 1977 and 1997. Income also varied widely based on race and gender, as well as education level. Median income in the year 2000 was 53,000 for whites, 35,000 for Hispanics, and only 34,000 for black families. High school grads saw a precipitous drop in their earnings in the 1990s, where they only earned half of the income of college graduates. The United States has become the richest country in the world, but among industrialized nations, it has the largest gap between the lowest and highest paid workers. The U.S. also has this greatest concentration of wealth among the top earners in the world. Many historians say that it reminds them of the Gilded Age. That's the conclusion of our 9-1 notes, We'll come back for one more podcast to conclude the curriculum with 9-2, with the year 2000 to present day. Take care. We'll see you next time.